Welcome to Let's Get to Work, a podcast with stories of hope and inspiration for people experiencing blindness and vision loss, as well as those wanting to support us. Brought to you by the Employment Committee of the American Council of the Blind, a place where we talk about all things employment, from finding jobs, holding jobs, building careers, and challenging stigmas. Each podcast will consist of interviews with two visually impaired people who have chosen to travel down unique career paths. Thank you for tuning in. Now let's get to work. My name is Brooke. I am the committee chair, and thank you so much for joining. I have my guest, Christine Ha, who is known for being a winner of MasterChef, and I know she has a lot more to share with us. So thank you so much for joining us, Christine. It's my pleasure. So, Christine, I just want to start by asking, can you share with us your story and however you want to interpret that question, how you got into cooking and where you are, where that journey took you from there? Sure. Uh, I was born of Vietnamese uh, refugee parents. So my background, my heritage is Vietnamese American. I was born in uh, Southern California. So I grew up eating a lot of great Vietnamese food, but that wasn't something that was I guess, considered trendy or very known, I think, growing up. So I ate a lot of these great, delicious foods, but they weren't familiar to my classmates and to people I knew. When I went to college, I still had vision at the time, and I missed the home cooking that my mom used to do. I actually lost her to cancer when I was younger, so she never taught me how to cook, and she didn't write any recipes like many moms and grandmas Uh, tend to do. So I had really no way of, I think, preparing the foods that she used to do. So I had to kind of try to relearn all of her dishes uh, by teaching myself how to cook and by my memories of her dishes of how they smelled, they tasted, how maybe they looked. So I taught myself how to cook, you know, some very simple Vietnamese dishes when I was in college. And then I realized that I loved to cook when I was able to feed my friends, my roommates. And I think I was amazed at how I could take raw ingredients and do some things to them, whether it's cutting them up and applying heat to them and then having a meal come out of it at the end that actually made others, other people happy when they ate it. So that's kind of what sparked my joy with cooking. So I started to just continue at it and teach myself more and more. I read cookbooks, I experimented in the kitchen. And then at the same time in my twenties, I started gradually losing my vision due to an autoimmune condition called neuromyelitis optica. And so it affected my optic nerves and I gradually lost my vision at the same time that I was excelling at cooking. So it was kind of a strange time where Every time my vision would decrease to a new level, I would have to reteach myself how to use less and less sight in the kitchen to make food. But that's really how I kind of got to where I am with cooking. Wow. So it was happening at the same time. And I I guess I was. So were you born sighted then? Yes, I was born with full vision and I didn't really start losing it until I was in my 20s. Okay. So, Christine, you were going through this era where you were discovering that cooking made other people happy, that you were creating these excellent things at the same time losing your sight. What were some of the challenges you experienced as you were learning how to adjust to your vision loss in the kitchen? 
I mean, aside from the obvious challenges, like how to use a knife when you can't see, that's kind of uh, scary when you first encounter that situation to also learning how to use a stove and deal with fire and how to cook things without being able to see how do you know it's done? How do you know it's still in your pan when you're uh, moving it around in the pan? So those were the obvious challenges. I think the bigger challenge was really just about confidence and not knowing how, you know, going from being able to cook an entire Thanksgiving meal for my family to barely being able to make a sandwich, how I was going to bridge that gap. So I think if anything, the biggest challenge was trying to regain my confidence uh, and uh, to try to experiment again in the kitchen and and teach myself uh, these skills in spite of vision loss. Yeah, I think it was, it's really interesting how you phrase that, that the gap started off as pretty large as far as what you were making before to what you were making as you were learning to adjust to, to vision loss. Were there ever times when you considered not developing cooking skills with vision loss or was that always something you wanted to keep working at? I think day by day, it was definitely something I considered, but as time passes, you just, you know, and I lived by myself at the time. So I had to figure out a way to feed myself and DoorDash and Uber Eats and those sorts of delivery services were not available (laughs) back then. So it's not like I could just easily order food or takeout or, or whatever. So either I had to have family and friends bring me food, but I knew that that wasn't something I could depend on daily. So whether I eat simple foods like cereal or, you know, assembling a sloppy sandwich every day. I knew that I had to at some point get better and kind of cook simply for myself. I really didn't expect to be able to cook full elaborate meals again, or an entire Thanksgiving meal per se, but I did think that over time I would have to learn how to cook again. So you surpassed your own expectation. Yes, I did. And I think it's only, it's one of those things where you kind of only realize in hindsight, because at the time you're just trying to get it through, like get through day by day or take it week by week, or sometimes even hour by hour. And you don't really realize how much progress you've made until maybe months have gone by. And then you look back and you think like, oh yeah, that's true. Three months ago, I was barely able to cut an orange. And then now, you know, I'm able to make breakfast or something. So it's one of those things where time passes and and things happen, but you don't really realize it. So you started out relearning how to cook. And can you share about that large step you took from all those baby steps day by day to eventually getting on MasterChef? Because I imagine there are a few different steps in between there. Yeah, I think largely, I, you know, I started getting independent living skills through at the time it was called the uh, Division for Blind Services through the state of Texas. So I started with instructors coming over to my house to show me you know, what simple ways I can and tools that I can use to chop fruit. Um, so I started very simply like that. And then I kind of just kept at it. And um, I realized that there were other I, I think I just learned to adapt in the kitchen and realize that I could use my other remaining four senses to be able to continue cooking, whether, you know, it's using my sense of hearing to know whether a pan is hot enough to sear meat or 
using my sense of smell to know whether the garlic is still raw or if it's just fragrant enough to add the next ingredient or if it's burnt. Uh, so I think just with a lot of practice and experimentation in the kitchen, I was able to you know, slowly take these small steps to get better and better in the kitchen. And then it really is, you know, there's really no way to skip rungs on the ladder. You, you just kind of have to keep at it. And it wasn't like an easy path or a quick path. It was just years of practicing and, and redoing and learning. And I think I just had this voracious appetite for, you know, being independent and learning how to cook again. And I think that's what kept me going and determined to learn And because I kept at it, you know, my friends and my family noticed and they said, it's really fascinating. I don't think a lot of people know how a visually impaired person feeds themselves or cooks for themselves in the kitchen at home. So a lot of them encouraged me to audition for MasterChef. Um, And lo and behold, I guess the judges there were fascinated too, as well as the rest of America. And that's uh, sort of the rest is history. (laughs) So the audition process, um, I don't, I don't know a whole lot about how MasterChef is different from other cooking shows. Was there, did you have to develop a specialty of some kind before you could audition? Yeah. So what they encourage you to do is for the open call auditions, they want you to bring what they call your signature dish. So it's something that represents you, uh, and your style of cooking, um, so I wanted to pay tribute to my mom. And like I'd explained at the beginning, like the Vietnamese foods that I grew up eating. So I, for my open call audition that happened in Austin, actually. So it's only a few hours away from Houston. I took the, uh, a braised pork belly dish that I also made in the finale that aired on my season of MasterChef. And it's just a simple pork belly that's braised with a few aromatics and some fish sauce. But it was something that I ate quite a bit when I was a child. It was something that was easy to cook and the ingredients were inexpensive. So my mom would cook it pretty often. I would say like once or twice a month. Uh, So it was something that I felt really reminded me of her. Uh, So that was the dish that I ended up using in the auditions for the open call auditions. Um, And yeah, so I bring the signature dish, you know, you go up Um, The producers would kind of taste your dish, talk to you, ask you about your story, why you picked this dish. Uh, And then after that, you just get whisked away to do a bunch of interviews, et cetera, et cetera. And then um, there's a lot of, I think, interviews and videos and auditions that you actually have to go through before you actually get flown to Los Angeles to film and do your televised audition before the three judges. Got you. So there's an audition. I assumed there was some kind of pre-audition process before the televised audition. So thank you yeah, for explaining <laughs> all of that. Yeah. Now this next question, I'm going to draw from my personal experience cooking and hope that you can transform your answer into a much more eloquent <laughs> description. <laughs> but when I cook in front of sighted people, I tend to get a lot of anxiety kind of responses. Oh, don't touch that. It's hot. Kind of they can get very anxious if I'm using a knife. And of course, obviously I've trained the sighted people I live with and other people in my life to relax and not do those things. But I'm curious how you navigated that kind of response of, of anxiety or fear about you cooking. 
I would say that when I first started cooking again, yes, I experienced the same thing from other people. And I think even to this day, not necessarily with cooking, but with just getting around, I think in a space that I know is my own or, you know, a space that I'm familiar with, people still are very anxious about me tripping over something. But these are people who I think are just trying to help and they don't know me well enough or know how well I know a space or how well I know that my kitchen or how well I know my way around a knife. But it really is about educating other people. I feel like oftentimes our biggest handicap is not what sort of disability we have, but how others perceive us and view us in, the, in this world. I think that by not, by not being confident in our abilities and our skills to achieve certain things, it actually doesn't ever allow us to grow and to learn from our own mistakes. And I think that perception is really what kind of a barrier we need to break to show people that, hey, as a visually impaired person, yes, you know, there are a lot of challenges that maybe the average sighted person may not come across. But if you give me certain adaptations and give me time to practice and time room to learn and grow, then, you know, all of us, we with vision impairments can achieve pretty much the same end result. And I think it's really a matter of teaching and educating other people how to deal with people with disabilities. Um, and I think that's really probably the, our, our biggest challenge is how, how to educate these people. <laughs> right, right. I've always kind of iterated that, that sometimes the disability isn't the disability itself. It's just the education that takes the most time. Yeah. So take us further into your story. So after you were on MasterChef and you won MasterChef, um, tell me how your career transformed after that. (laughs) At the time, I was in graduate school for creative writing. So I was actually studying for a master's degree. And then this happened. I I took off the penultimate semester of my graduate school career to audition and and be on the show. So I was supposed to defend my thesis and graduate that year. But this whole MasterChef thing kind of uh, put a halt on that for the time being. So, you know, after that, of course... I was all over the news um, and my career kind of launched in a different path. People didn't know me as a writer, but knew me more as the contestant with the vision impairment that won a tele, you know, a national television cooking competition. Um, So I did a lot of public speaking because I think people were really interested in my story on how I overcame such challenges to get to where I was And then I wrote a cookbook, which is part of the uh, deal for winning MasterChef as well. So I wrote a cookbook and then I did a lot of public speaking, did a lot of events, culinary events. I did a lot of nonprofit work. Um, Eventually, I knew that I kind of wanted to open my own place, but I didn't really know what that meant or entailed or what it would look like. Uh, This was actually something I'd wanted to do even before going on MasterChef. But, you know, it still took me several years to get to owning um, or opening my first restaurant. But the trajectory is I, you know, did some stuff in entertainment. I hosted a a show called Four Senses that was filmed in Canada. That's uh, a a show 
that teaches visually impaired home cooks how to navigate their kitchen. So I did a lot of, I guess, entertainment. Um, I did do stuff in the food industry, but it really wasn't until very recently in the past like year and a half that I actually opened a restaurant and now legitimately can say I'm in the restaurant industry. Wow. You've done so much. <laughs> it's amazing how, and, and I don't think very many people can say they put their thesis on hold because they had to be on a national television show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm the kind of person that also likes, uh, you know, I, I, like to finish what I started. So the semester afterwards, I did come back and finish out school and defend my thesis and graduated with my MFA. <laughs> oh, great. I was going to ask if the thesis ever got <laughs> yes, completed. <laughs> so tell me about this new restaurant and especially how you've navigated the restaurant with COVID-19. My first restaurant was called The Blind Goat that I opened in summer of 2019. And that one was is actually a small station inside a food hall in downtown Houston. And that one serves like uh, a lot of street food inspired modern Vietnamese cuisine. So I opened that one before the pandemic. Um, that was a big learning curve, which I welcomed because I know that I didn't know a lot about the restaurant industry and what it's like to actually open a business and run a restaurant because uh, the thing with MasterChef is it's a show for a, in a competition for home cooks who had not had any professional culinary experience. So it's not like I've ever gone to culinary school. I've never cooked in a professional or commercial kitchen. So this was my path to legitimizing, I think, what it's like to run a restaurant, an actual commercial restaurant that feeds the public. So that was a steep learning curve for me. Um, it was definitely stressful, but I'm really proud of what we've been able to accomplish because, you know, in that first year, we actually got uh, nominated for a James Beard Award for Best New Restaurant in America. And that's like a huge deal. So I was really oh. proud of that. And then the pandemic hit. So we had to quickly pivot. And that just is another lesson of teaching you about business ownership and how you have to really adapt quickly or else you could become obsolete as a brand. Uh, but then right before the pandemic, crazily enough, uh, I had already signed a lease on a second restaurant that was a standalone brick and mortar restaurant. Um, and that, you know, I was going to call that one Sin Jiao, which means hello in Vietnamese. And it's kind of like a neighborhood spot with um, elevated modern Vietnamese cuisine and a whole bar program. So I was excited about that, but then the pandemic hit, but I'd signed the lease already. So regardless, I was, you know, owed rent money. So I had to get this restaurant open during the pandemic in spite of the pandemic. So that as well has been, you know, having its own challenges now that I have two restaurants that I'm trying to steer and guide to survival through this pandemic. But I think we'll we'll be fine with both restaurants. It's just a matter of prudence and, and making sure that you're, you know, you're watching the money closely. Um, but it's definitely been a struggle and a challenge to not only just own two restaurants through this pandemic, but to do it while I'm visually impaired. So it's been, uh, I've been quite busy and stressed, but, you know, it's, it's good. Cause I think if you're not busy and you're not doing things, then you're not really alive. Hmm. So you find you find the stress to be rewarding and in, in a lot of ways and helping <laughs> you stay focused through this 
downtime that's the pandemic sounds like it has not been a downtime for you (laughs) yeah it's definitely not been a downtime it's been a strange 2020 was a strange year where I would say it felt like we were moving 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 constantly but going nowhere like just kind of in circles (laughs) um you know I wouldn't say I embraced the stress I (laughs) it's it's just one of those things where I knew I've been through challenges probably just as big in my life you know with losing my vision and being diagnosed with a chronic illness and also losing my mom when I was young that I was like well this is another one of those years where you just got to figure it out and and do your best and 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 try to survive it. So that's just kind of how I felt with 2020. Mm-hmm. Okay. So right now you have both restaurants that you're juggling. Yep. And, and are you doing just takeout kind of thing? Or are you doing some dine-in as well? Uh, in the state of Texas, the governor has allowed us to do dine-in at a, a lower capacity. So that is what we're doing. We're still not seeing business uh, as thriving, of course, as the way it was before the pandemic, which I don't expect. And um, you know, my biggest concern is safety for the public and safety for my staff. So we're taking all of the necessary precautions, but we are open for dine-in and for takeout at both restaurants. That's great. I, I want to come to Houston and try both of them. <laughs> <laughs> so this is kind of a, kind of a general question, but what is one story that you that really sticks out to you either a moment in your career or a moment on the show that has that really epitomizes what you've accomplished (laughs) i know everyone who's watched the show or listened to the show will think about the moment or the episode where i had the um, challenge of baking an apple pie And baking is not my forte because it requires very precise ingredient measurement. And when you put something in the oven, you can't see it or know how it's baking or cooking up because you just don't, you know, the way I I know my food is cooked is by the smell or by touch. And you can smell it in the oven, but, you, you know, by the time you smell that it's burned, it's too late. And it's not like I can open the oven and put my hands in and feel the pie crust. So that was a big challenge. And I feel like I remember I didn't get my pie into the oven until 18 minutes before the challenge was ending. And I knew, I just didn't really think that I could pass this pressure test. And I remember cranking up my oven to as high as I could hoping for the best. And then when I was bringing my pie up to get judged, I really felt like it was probably the worst looking pie, probably not baked all the way. So I figured I was going to be sent home after that challenge. But surprisingly, the pie crust was golden. It may not have looked like the best pie, but it was pretty good. At least that's what the judges said. And that was early on in the season. So for me, I was still not confident in what I was able to do compared to all of these other really talented sided chefs or cooks, I'm sorry, around me that were also competing that season. But I, something I will always remember that I carry with me was when Gordon Ramsay tasted my pie and told me that I needed to stop doubting myself and start believing in myself and to be bold. And those are words that I take with not only myself, but I express to other people too, who are going through any challenges in life. That's great. And I think that kind of ties into my last question for you. And maybe the response is the same. I'm not sure. But what advice would you give other blind and visually impaired listeners um, who are either seeking employment or at the 
different parts of their career as they try to move forward? I think that some good advice that I've learned over the years since being, since losing my vision and, you know, going through what I've gone through is first of all, it's okay to ask for help. I very much am an independent person. So when I started losing my vision, it was very difficult for me because I didn't like to rely on other people or burden other people to assist me with reading my mail or helping me prepare food. But what I've learned is that there are oftentimes people who want to help and that it's okay to ask for help. That that's what, you know, I think that's a world that we live in is you also pay it forward. You're going to be helped at this time and it's okay. And then another day, like maybe there's some skill you possess that you can help somebody else. Uh, two, I think it's also important to celebrate the small victories. So what we had talked about before where, you know, I felt like I could never cook again and I, it seemed very daunting to, to try to be able to make an entire meal to not only feed myself, but my friends or, or if I were throwing a party or something. But what I realized is that you kind of have to look back and realize that you are making these baby steps and that you celebrate each small victory. And that really helps build confidence and helps you not be afraid to take on new challenges and experiment in the kitchen or wherever it is in life that you need to, to take on more challenges. And I, I think when you build that confidence, it emboldens you to take on more and more. And then that is kind of a snowball effect because when you achieve, then you also grow more confident. So I, I would say like celebrate the small victories, you know, even if you don't think it's a big deal, tell yourself it is a big deal. Think about what you were not able to do yesterday or a week ago or last year, and then take pride and joy, I think, in those moments. So I would say those are my two key pieces of advice. Well, thank you so much, Christine, for joining us. And I'm going to make my way to Houston soon so that I can enjoy some of your food. But thank you for your wonderful advice and for walking us through your journey and taking the time to be on Let's Get to Work podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Welcome to Let's Get to Work. Our second interview this month is with, is with Dr. Hobie Wedler. Say hi, Hobie. Hey, Peter, how are you? I'm so glad to be with you today. This is a lot of fun. Well, thank you. And, and thank you for joining us. Could you start by giving us an overall sense of what you do work-wise? I know you're an entrepreneur, but just give us a Wow. Yeah, that's a great question. What, what the heck do I do? I, I have to figure that out myself. I do a lot of different things. I was born completely blind. Uh, I got my PhD in organic chemistry back in 2016. That was really exciting to earn. But it took getting a PhD to realize that I didn't necessarily want to be a chemist as part of my full-time career. Uh, so I've always been an entrepreneur and uh, really picked up on those entrepreneurial roots. I, um, in, in many ways, do a lot of uh, work with the wine industry in terms of uh, hosting tastings for both industry and consumers that are in a unique format. I also do a lot of product development in the wine industry, flavor, texture, mouthfeel, aroma, these sorts of things. Um, among other things, I uh, represent a uh, branding company here in the United States. Our studios in uh, in Australia, the wine and spirits branding company. And uh, I have a couple of companies that are that are very very close on the horizon. One is a spirits brand that I'm uh, launching, 
And the other is a rub and spice company, which is going to sell rubs and spices predominantly online, but also in uh, in several uh, wholesale stores as well, or retail stores rather. So we've got a lot going on. I would say that I spend most of my time in the food and drink space, but I also really enjoy helping people think about how to use all of their senses to enjoy the world. So let's let's come back to that. Can you talk about your upbringing and what prompted you to be an entrepreneur as compared to a government worker, for example? Yeah, you know, it's my parents. I, I, I hand it to my parents all the time for uh, for their willingness to and ability to hold exceptionally high expectations of both me, who happens to be blind, and my fully sighted brother. And they never let us lower the bar. The expectations were always held very high. They work hard and showed us how to work very hard. My mom's a teacher. My dad uh, worked as a a wire chief uh, managing power transmissions for our utility company here in California. And uh, they just worked hard. It was not uncommon to come home and spend several hours on on, uh, homework and then go work on the house. You know, we did everything around the house ourselves. And I just liked working for myself. I didn't like the confines of you know, having to do something nine to five. And, uh, you know, I didn't think I would necessarily go work, go to work for myself, even while in graduate school. Um, I, I really wanted to teach. I have the heart of a teacher. My goal with uh, studying chemistry was to be able to walk into a lecture hall with about 500 students, you know, or 500 plus uh, freshman chemistry students and uh, make chemistry exciting to them at 8 a.m. on a Monday morning after a weekend of partying. But, um, Yeah. So now um, I I decided that I would step a little bit away from teaching and into the entrepreneurial space. Uh, And I realized that I've always really been an entrepreneur. I've always liked to do work uh, and and solve someone's problem and frankly, get paid for it. And and the most simple definition that I can think of of entrepreneurialism is um, or entrepreneurism is, is figuring out a problem that really needs to be solved and then earning a wage for solving it. And that really is what entrepreneurs ultimately do, right? You know, find a problem and solve it, as you said. The, the best entrepreneurs do that. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Not all, but not all. Yeah. Them, but yeah, no, I, th- I think we, I we think strive that. to do that every every day is to find the real problem that needs solving and provide an actionable solution that we can uh, really leverage and, uh, and and make someone's life better because of it, ideally. So I'm interested in your in your studies to be a um, a chemist. So uh, that talk about your experiences doing that. Uh, what 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 were your challenges? How did you overcome them? You know that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's a big question. I'll try to be as concise as possible. Um, I actually knew that I was a, I'm a nerd, right? And I knew that I wanted to teach, and I knew that I wanted to go to graduate school in something because I wanted to teach at the university level. Um, not knowing how I would study chemistry without an assistant in graduate school or with minimal sighted assistance. I also ended up getting a degree in United States history um, because I'm, I'm one of those people, and I think you you can relate, Peter. Is that I, you know if there's if I can live my life and do what I want with as little assistance as possible, I'm I'm the happiest. Um, sure. Yeah, and uh, I didn't know how chemistry was going to work, particularly experimental chemistry, um, which is chemistry in the lab without an assistant. And to be honest, I don't think it would have worked very well, but I, my advisor is a computational chem, it was a computational chemist, meaning that we studied everything on the computer. And uh, we were able to make the very specific type of chemistry that 
that my advisors group does, quite accessible to me, using 3D printing and a series of in-house scripts. You know, the challenging part is that um, my my sighted colleagues can uh, build molecules using a what's called a graphical user interface, and then submit them to run quantum mechanical calculations on them on the computer, and then look at the result. And oftentimes looking at the result is very telling because it tells you when we when we run a calculation, we're, we're uh, sort of, I don't want to get too technical here, but we're optimizing the molecule and finding a lowest energy confirmation, which means that things wiggle and shift around until they're the lowest energy. And if you imagine, just pardon my, my just bear with my silly analogy here, if, uh, if you set a cat down on its head on a pillow, it's not going to be very happy. It's going to wiggle around until it's more most comfortable or, as some might say, lowest energy. And if you want to reach out and feel that cat, okay, now you know what its lowest energy confirmation is right then on that pillow. We can't quite reach out and feel molecular structures. Right. So we sort of overcame this by 3D printing them. Um, 3D printing takes a long time, so it was more of a proof of concept for me while in graduate school. Um I would often sit down with an assistant and have them just look at my structures with me, not for me, but with me right. and uh, explain what they, what they saw. But one of the things that, that I made sure of is that I was going to not start a project that was completely inaccessible to me. I always wanted to make sure that whatever project I, I embarked on before really getting into the details of the work, I, uh, I worked with my advisor and, and myself and other resources around me to make sure that that assignment was as accessible or that project was going to be as accessible as possible. So in doing that, I would say about 35% of my research was in how to make chemistry more accessible. And about 65% was doing hardcore chemistry. And I will add there that another uh, branch of the accessibility work, which did get published in my dissertation is actually my, uh, my founding of a nonprofit, uh, which was called accessible science. It's, uh, currently on hiatus and being handed over to another organization, but accessible science had a mission of teaching blind and visually impaired high school students uh, how to do chemistry in a series of hands-on chemistry camps. Um, and we inspired a lot of students, well over a hundred students throughout the, the country. And I'm proud to say that a lot of those students are now in, uh, in graduate programs um, around the country, which. That, just, that is, that is really, really cool. Congratulations. It tickles me. Yeah, no, it Thank does. you. I have to tell you that if, if you put a cat on the, at its head, I think it would yowl and complain very loudly. I don't think that's... I think it would, too. Yeah, I don't think cats are li- like that very much. So I can't uh, say I've done that experiment, but no, well, it's, no. always, well, it's always I, worth a try. Well, no, it's not, actually. But in any case, I, um, <laughs> I, I, I am curious. So, you know, so how have these skills that you talked about uh, transferred to the work you do? Yeah, you know, I, I always think scientifically. I, I care a lot about the scientific process and, and how science is done. Um, and I bring that into my work every day. I, I really like to use use what I know to solve problems and think very scientifically. Um, you know, I, in some ways, it's it's not related because that was a lot of chemistry. And now I'm doing very entrepreneurial work, uh, mostly outside of the sciences, um, doing that predominantly because it it really, it really interests me, but I, I still, what still persists is my desire to teach. And I, I like to say that everything I do in business involves teaching in some way, shape or form, and uh, just opening people's minds and getting them excited about what they do. And that's the academic skill that I think transfers right over to the work that I do now. The reason I didn't end up teaching chemistry is the type of chemistry I, I longed to teach was, um, 
freshman chemistry, early general chemistry, because it's when you can really inspire people and get them thinking really deeply and excitedly about science. Um, and what I found is that students didn't necessarily speak chemistry as much as they sort of thought it um, and, and wanted to see pretty pictures. And I spoke chemistry when I taught it. And I ended up spending most of my time, I was fortunate enough to take to teach a few classes while in graduate school. And I ended up spending the majority of my time uh, not teaching, but but having people, um, you know, have, working with my assistant to make pretty pictures and mm, uh, yeah, decided yeah. that maybe I didn't want to teach chemistry. But the, the aspect of chemistry and my chemical and scientific career, other than just always obeying and loving the, the scientific discovery process. And, and I'd say once a scientist, always a scientist. So that's never going to go away. Uh, but it's really my desire and love for teaching. So why wine tasting? It's a form of teaching. Um, I grew up in, that's the simple answer. The, the other simple answer is that I grew up in Sonoma County, uh, which is wine country in California, and just north of San Francisco, about two counties up. And I, I am back in Sonoma County now. I live in Petaluma, um, which is uh, just at the southern end of, of wine country. But I went to school in Davis, and uh, Davis, uh, the University of California, Davis, is, a, is an incredible wine program. And um, <clears throat> I took a few classes as an undergraduate because I was inspired by the fact that grapes were being grown even as a child. I thought it was great. These sort of hyper-local things that end up being very global uh, was so exciting to me that, that wine grapes were being grown basically in my backyard. Sorry, and then I don't have any information about that. Google is going. I'm so sorry. That's okay. Um, it did it. It has a mind of her. She has a mind of her own. It but uh, you know, grapes were being grown in my backyard and then bottled up and and sold as great wine um, all over the world. And isn't this amazing? I got to learn more about this industry. So I, and I, I really, since a young age, I've always loved cooking and I've loved training my palate. So that compared with growing up in wine country and sampling wines and loving them, and then taking some wine wine making and wine appreciation classes that piqued my interest at Davis. Um, led me to get a phone call from Francis Ford Coppola's team in 2011, his winery team, asking if I would innovate with Francis a truly blindfolded wine experience. And that was an offer, you know, when Coppola calls you and asks you to do something, you say yes, and then you hang up and you say, what the heck did I just say yes to? How am I going to um, do that? Yeah. Right, how am I going to do this? But we ended up putting together a really successful program that we took all over the country with Coppola. And uh, and just had a great deal of fun with. So I'm so, so I'm, I'm curious. How did you? How did Coppola know about you? How, how did that happen? Coppola met me through an, a mutual friend, actually, in the blindness community. An architect by the name of Chris Downey uh, lost his sight in 2008. Uh, really became, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, became right. a close friend of his. Anyway, so yeah. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. So he, you met him through through Chris. And what happened? And so did you, did you keep in contact afterwards or what? Well, yeah, I still work. I still work a lot with the winery actually. Um, Not necessarily doing these tastings specifically, but I help them a lot and with, with other things. And I've, I've befriended their CEO. He's a really deeply trusted friend and mentor of mine. Uh, So it's, it's great. So talk about how you created this blindfolded wine tasting program. So I want to be very clear that the blindfold is not a means of showing sighted people what it's like to be one of us. Some people hear blindfold and they it's off-putting because they think, oh gosh, are you just trying to train society to, you know, to see what it's like to be you for a day? And well, no, that's not true at all. And I would never 
be presumptuous enough to say that by putting on a blindfold for an hour, I could show someone what it's like to be me who's been totally blind since birth. Um, I rather use the blindfold to refocus the way that people focus uh, their attention. You know, we use eyesight for 85 to 90% of the information we take in from our surroundings. That's amazing. That's a lot of, a lot of information for only one sense. So when we temporarily remove eyesight, we create opportunities to absolutely enjoy the world differently and pick up things that maybe we never would have picked up on in wine. So it's been a really interesting and successful way to showcase wines to people. And I've had people fall in love with wines that they didn't even think they liked. Interesting. So, so give, give us a, a brief sense of how your program worked. How, you know, yeah. uh, if I, if I, if I came into your program as a, as a sighted person, what, so what I would do or a blind person, or a blind what I would person. do is I, would, I, uh, I, I have people uh, blindfold themselves either before they enter the room and then we lead them in right. or we all come into the room and sit down at the table without any wine poured, put blindfolds on. And, um, and then while I'm talking, the wines are poured. I like to do it the former way. Most it's a little more difficult, but it's great when people don't even have a notion of the look of the space that they're sitting in mm-hmm. and they just come in without, without any, any prior uh, notions of it. And what we do is we talk about, people are usually a little nervous to have the blindfold on. We just talk about how wine is really an art form. And the point of the blindfold here is not to you know, be, become superheroes or anything weird like that. It's really just to enjoy wine differently. So we have people really sink into their senses, feel what the chair feels like beneath them. Listen to how the sound echoes off the walls in the room. What does, forget about the wine for a second. What does the air around you smell like? What about the floor beneath your feet? Um, the, the, the way the floor feels under your feet? What does the table feel like in front of you? And then we, we talk about, about wine and about how many different aromas and the complex chemistry of wine. And because I think it's really important to sort of do a warm up. You're a musician, Peter. You, you understand the, I do, the philosophy of, I do. of warming up and getting into the groove. Yeah. Um, so what I, what I do is I pick out usually between three and five aromas that are, that I think are fairly prominent in at least one of the wines that we're going to be tasting. And I have people smell these aromas by themselves. Just like if I'm doing lemon, I, I would zest some lemon into a little bit of white wine so they're smelling the aroma blended in with wine. So it's no surprise when they smell it eventually in the wine. And, and we, we smell these different aroma samples and talk about, okay, what are we smelling? So we have some standards because I, I know just as well as we all do that aroma is just, um, you know, it's, it's a language. Aroma, flavor, and texture is a language with vocabulary words. So we can identify these standard aromas, talk about what they mean, and then smell and taste and deeply analyze between four and six wines, it really creates for a rich experience. And people end up forgetting about their surroundings. They forget about their cell phones. They're, they're not distracted by all these media that, that are coming in, whether it's a bird that they see that's particularly beautiful flying by outside the window or their phone ringing or the post that their friend just made on Facebook, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, it's just an easy way to connect with the world. So, that's uh, so. What were the results of these programs? I mean, uh, you know, oh, I guess my, my question is, yeah. So, talk about the results, but I'm also sort of curious: is why did Coppola want you to do this? What was in it for him? 
Coppola actually attended an experience uh, in the dark in Asia that was good, but he thought it was not. It was kind of gimmicky. It wasn't led by a blind person. It was just not, not you know, not as not as good as it could be. It was it was too nurturing. You know, they they clapped for him when he walked across a room and found a wrapped present. You know, it's like he wanted to be more authentic. And he said, I, I think we should build this at our winery. You guys, maybe you can find a blind person who can do this. And well, he, he scooped me up off the street and I, I, I guess I was good enough. No, I'm kidding there. I, uh, you know, because of Chris, we, we befriended each other and, uh, and it, you know, it, it just, that, that's what he wanted. And, and that's exactly what he got. He wanted consumers to have a really innovative uh, and really unique experience that other wineries won't, weren't doing. So from a consumer side, consumers left saying, I never knew I liked this type of wine or wow, I will never taste Pinot Noir the same way. Or this this really opens my eyes to, and, and we don't mean any pun there, to wine in general and things that we never appreciated or never understood about wine when, you know, casually sipping it with, with friends, you know, at a, at a party. So it really focuses their mind and make, creates for maybe a, a little bit more of a learning experience around wine. And for, so on the I, trade side, really quickly, on the, on the trade side, We've, we've seen sales greatly increase because of it, because we get either buyers or distributors who are selling the wine more excited about it. And then they go out and they sell it even better. That's, that was my follow-up question. What, what's the business benefit for these programs? And you've answered yeah. the question, which is people bought more wine, right? And, people and, buy more wine. And, it's and easier. A, yeah. You know, these, these distributor portfolios have sometimes thousands of wine uh, suppliers in their portfolio. And if we can bring one to the top easily, like we did with Coppola and like we're planning to do for many more uh, over the next coming months and years to come, it, it really helps as a tool that's very unique to bring a wine to the top of the pile. So is that sort of the, what you're going to be doing with your other businesses with regards to spirits and spices? We'll do some of it, but but I really like to be a curator of great flavor and, and getting that messaging out into the world. That's That's really what I do. So, so what, is, what does that mean, curator of flavors? I mean, what does that mean? Uh, you know, uh, it what means does that... really, you know, well, that's a good question. I need to think about that. Of course, I use terminology. I need to think about what it means. What I mean there is um, the having line. a really good sense of the, of the world around us and being able to provide really wonderful products to people that um, have great flavor that they can enjoy and they can hear about how they were created and about my, my sort of story and, uh, and and utilize that to to enhance their enjoyment of the products is sort of the goal. And I really do love the uh, the sort of unusualness of the of the work that we do. And the whole goal is just to. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying I'm curing cancer or you know doing brain surgery every day. I just want to make people's lives at home or when they can dine out again, dining out just a little more enjoyable. And if I can give them tips and tricks to do that, or I can even create products that are highly enjoyable. I'm a happy person in my own way. I'm, I'm making the world a better place. And that's, by the way, Peter, that's something else that's extremely important to mention here is that I'm very dedicated to diversity and equity and inclusion and making the world <coughs> more inclusive space for all of us. <coughs> Pardon me, a more inclusive space for all of us who live here. And that's, that's what I strive to do every day. And I'm, I'm involved with a number of initiatives to, uh, to do that. So, Thank you for that. Can you talk a little bit about how you have done this work as a blind person? You know, most of our audience is, most of our audience is blind or, yeah. or people interested in hiring blind people. What, you know, uh, what challenges, challenges have you 
experience and how have you overcome them? What accommodations have you needed? You know, all those kinds of questions. That's a great question. Yeah. You know, as a, as a blind entrepreneur, it's just uh, like anything that we do, you know, being blind in a sighted world, things take longer and we need to, we need to figure out ways, ways of making them accessible. Um, I've found uh, I, my, first of all, my business partner has been really helpful at, um, you know, providing that, that little bit of sighted assistance where needed, and I, I work with him on uh, like our bookkeeping software and that sort of thing. Um, I do plan to hire an executive assistant soon. And I'm not saying that that's the solution. It's just, frankly, when you when you have a lot on your plate, I think that's a, you know, getting some assistance where needed is really important. Um, what's amazing about um, about using, you know, about the day of the, of the 21st century with technology is that, you know, so much of what I do is actually very, very accessible to me. I listen to podcasts, I read articles, and most stuff is accessible online. You know, through a through a screen reader, I use my Braille uh, Sense uh, uh, Polaris by Hims to access all sorts of information in Braille. So I read read a lot in Braille. Um, I have an embosser that I that I emboss things on because I like having hard copies to read a lot. Um, yeah, and I you know depending on the on the meeting and what we're doing i i'll either meet on on video or or on audio only um the, the, one of the reasons that i and it's a really good question i haven't actually thought much about peter so you stumped me a little bit of how have i made this possible as a blind person what i really try to do all the time is think about if if i'm able to make one thing of you know one step of my workflow a little bit easier by being able to take notes on my braille sense or um you know, being able to log information using a CRM that's more accessible than another one. I found that uh, Salesforce is fairly accessible, but I think HubSpot is, is is doing very well as well. So keeping track of customer data and customer records that way is um, is great. I love, I, my company does use G Suite and I love how Google has become much more accessible for, uh, it's it's not perfect yet. And I think we would all agree about that, but, but they have plugins to, uh, allow Google to work and interact with windows in many ways. And uh, I've been really impressed with, with what they've done. I also, for, for LinkedIn and, and most of my social media use my phone. And, and I just have to say, Apple has just impressed me so much since the beginning on how incredibly out of the box accessible their products are. Um, and for, for those, those who are listening, who are thinking of hiring blind people, I would say, you know, we just have a different way of looking at things. And because we have a unique perspective, I think we we have different ways and perhaps more effective ways of um, solving problems and, and just thinking about problems. And one thing that I've found to, to be a, to my advantage as a, as a completely blind entrepreneur is that I just have a different view of the world. You know, I, I do things differently. I think about how to solve problems differently. Not, no sighted person is thinking about, oh, which which social media apps are more accessible than others to communicate and create content. You know, we have to we have to figure this stuff out and you know and, and, and really think through and problem solve. I'm currently in the process, I want to start doing a lot more video marketing and creating video content. So I'm creating a, a studio space, which is basically my desk where all my cameras are positioned correctly so that I can click a button and, and start recording. And then once I capture that video, I can send it anywhere I want and keep track of that. So that's, well, those are some of the ways that I do things. No, that, that's, that's a very good answer. And I have uh, about two minutes left in this conversation. And yeah. I really have one more question to ask you. Um, and that is, what advice would you give to a blind person just starting starting out? What 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 advice would you give them 
Uh, and then uh, equivalently, what advice would you give to a, as you started going on this road, but I, I encourage you to continue it, to an employer who might be interested in hiring a blind person? Okay, if you're interested in, in, in you know, getting started as a blind person, I have three very simple points. Being blind in a sighted world requires harder work. We have to work longer hours. It takes us longer to do things. You got to own that and just suck it up and do it. That's number one. Yes, there is no substitute for hard work. And these are in, in order of importance. So hard work is super important. Equivalent to hard work, I would say, is um, don't be afraid to take on big challenges and don't be afraid to fail at them. You got to try in order to succeed. So yeah. take those risks, take those challenges. And number three, just be you. Don't try to be anyone who you think you should be. And this advice is for anyone, sighted, blind, anyone doing anything. You got to just be you in every sense of the meaning of that word. Figure out what you're I'm all about core values. Figure out what your core values are and use those to soar to new heights. Don't do anything that you don't love doing, because if you do, you're not going to be good at it and it's going to cause stress. It's going to cause anxiety. And I'm, I'm still learning this too. So do as I say, not as I do necessarily. And if so you're an employer I, I, interested in, go ahead, keep going. If you're, an, if you're an employer interested in hiring a blind person, don't be afraid of their accommodations. They will work with you to figure out if they're any, any type of reasonable person, which most of us are, we will work to figure out what accommodations are necessary. And don't let that stop you from exploring hiring a blind person or anyone from any minority group, be, the way that your company is going to be more diverse and inclusive is to hire a diverse workforce that has unique ways of problem solving and viewing the world. Hiring blind is an advantage to you. And I want to just close by saying, reach out to me anytime at uh, Hobie, H-O-B-Y, Wedler, W-E-D-L-E-R.com. Email me there. You can get a hold of me in an instant there. Add yourself to my, my email list, whatever you can do, keep in touch with me. Thank you so much, Hobie. This has been really terrific. Uh, and we wish you well in your future endeavors. Thank you, Peter. It's an honor. You've been listening to Let's Get to Work, a podcast from the Employment Committee at the American Council of the Blind. Have questions, episode ideas, or feedback? Feel free to email Brooke Jostet, the committee chair, at B-R-O-O-K-E underscore J-O-S-T-A-D at Comcast.net. Until next time, work it.